Thank, wow, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, if you don't mind, we're going to turn there. Let's pray together, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks for another morning. We give you thanks that we get to enjoy you and each other. The greatest commandment you gave us is to love you with everything we've got and to love people. And we're here to do that. And we want to, God, we want to, we want to experience you and experience what that's like. But God, we also want to be refined by you and changed by you and transformed by you into the likeness of Jesus. God, so for those of us who love you and follow you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would confront issues that we need to deal with, that we'd be honest in the process, we'd feel the freedom to confess those things and to turn from them. God, for those who are here that don't have a relationship with you, that haven't surrendered to you, Holy Spirit, I pray for conviction upon them that they would come to know Jesus, that they would come to know the one that they were created for. And God, as we deal with a, a heavy topic, um, Father, I pray grace, just, I pray that grace drenches it, that it's necessary to deal with the truth as well, but never void of grace. And so, God, I pray that you would take this feeble attempt on my part to teach your word and do a great thing through it. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, back to verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the, in the futility of their mind. And last night we looked at, okay, so in the Lord, so according to what God thinks and says, and hopefully we hopefully were able to walk away with maybe a, a bigger picture of who God is. Instead of kind of who we've dumbed him down to be or who we're comfortable, comfortable with him being, but we've actually tried, we want to approach him as who he is, for who he is. He's God. Guys, the Bible the Bible says that God measures the universe with the span of his hand. And I mean, the Father is spirit, and so, but we take the picture. So this universe that's ever expanding, you just take the Milky Way galaxy from one end to the other, just one galaxy. You go from one end to the other, it'll take you 120,000 years. Well, that means you have to go 186,000 miles per second for 120,000 years, and you'll get from one end to the other. And our Milky Way galaxy is one of about 350 billion galaxies in the known universe, and God measures it like this. And that God is the one who invites us, and that God is the God who commands us. And I know that that word command, we don't like that because we don't like being told what to do. I guarantee you that none of us in the room like being told what to do. It's like when you go to Disneyland, like you spend your college savings to go see a mouse. You show up and you're doing all the stuff and you're, you're on a teacup ride, which I don't understand that concept. Guys, I get motion sickness on swings. No joke. No joke. I could be on a swing and about eight in, I'm like, I just want to throw up. It's just horrible. 
So just to sit in a cup that goes around in circles, I'm like, I just spent $55,000 to do this. And churros are like $700. I don't understand it, but it's, it's, it's the happiest place on earth. Okay, but some of you guys love So you go to Disneyland, and you see that sign on, the, on a door that says, cast members only. Be honest. How many of you sit there and go, I just paid so much money. I should get to go back there. Anybody else besides myself? And if I want to try on Mickey Mouse's outfit, I'll do it. If I want to use the president of Disneyland's bathroom, I'm going to do it. Because this is supposed to be the happiest place on earth. But I don't like being told what not to do. I want to be able to do what I want to do. And isn't it, isn't it weird that we, we live in a culture, and it's, it's not like this is any different. Friends, sin has been around since Adam and Eve fell. And we'll look into that. We all have these desires. And then God sets up these commandments for our good. We think that he's the ultimate killjoy, but how could the one who created joy be the ultimate killjoy? If God is the creator of joy and happiness and laughter, then how is it that all of a sudden the one who created those things is the ultimate killjoy and doesn't know how to have joy? Doesn't know how to laugh. Doesn't know how to be happy. Guys, we've turned him as, or people have turned, some have, maybe even the room, some have turned him as the ultimate killjoy. He doesn't know how to have fun. We just, we want to do what we want to do. This is fun. And yet, I think that we settle for things that just shine, and they're trinkets, and they're cheap. And God says, going, I want to give you something that is so much better. So an example I use often, if you, you ever been to a one-year-old's birthday party? You ever been to that? You know the one-year-old has no clue what's going on. The whole day has no clue what's going on. I mean, all of a sudden, the one-year-old's in a new outfit, doesn't even know it's a new outfit. Just sitting there in a new outfit, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is such a great day. The parents are going crazy, trying to get everything ready. Then people start showing up. They've got big presents. They're all wrapped, and the one-year-old has no clue what those are for. And then it's, uh, and then you, and then, and then it's time for cake. The first taste of sugar, usually. And so then all of a sudden, the kid who's fully dressed is half naked. He's just sitting in a diaper. And I gotta be, I'm really thankful that that's not like the normal for every birthday. Like all of a sudden, it's like for my 49th birthday, and I have a new outfit, and then it's time for cake, and it just stripped down to my chonies. Like that would just seem a little bit awkward, and no one would show up to the party. And so it's just weird, but here he is, one-year-old in, a, in, a, in his little high chair, almost butt naked, just a diaper, and then all of a sudden, you bring out the cake, but no one says anything to the kid. It's like you bring it, it's his own little small little cake. You bring it over, and you place it down like a grenade. It's like, oh. And then the paparazzi's on the front. All the cameras are ready, videotaped. Nobody does it when you're 48. When I take a bite of my cake, the people are going, good bite, good job. You are so cute. The little guy sitting there has, doesn't know what this is. Everybody's just looking, anticipation. And so all of a sudden, they, he puts the finger and everyone's like, and he starts to bring it to his mouth and like, this is it, this is it. Mom's over there crying, dad's trying not to, he's just scratching his eye because men don't cry. And then as he gets closer, he tastes it and then his mind has been blown. And I wonder if he looks at his parents and then that little mind going, why don't you love me? You kept this from me for 
365 days, and then, bam, just puts his face right in there. He's covered all over the place. And then all of a sudden, it's time for, for presents. <laughs> you ever notice a little one-year-old will play with the box more than the toy? Like this massive thing, it's like, I don't, I don't even know that that's like the box. Guys, if I walked up to a one-year-old and I placed a can of soup and a $100 bill right in front of them, which one do you think that they want to play with? Yeah. Can of soup, every 100%. I guarantee 100%. Why? Because it's just paper. There's, no, there's nothing to this. To a one-year-old, there's, not, there's no value. But this, man, you pound that thing, you could roll it, you could throw it at mom, she screams, so you laugh and you do it again. But that one piece of paper, I mean, that paper, it's like, I don't care. Guys, i got to be honest. If I saw a $100 bill on the ground and a little guy going toward it, I would beat him to it. And I would gently nudge him out of the way and pick it up and give him a can of soup and say, thank you, because I understand the value of the $100 bill. And yet I wonder how many of you have settled for a can of soup, thinking that you have the best thing you could ever have. And the whole while, God is sitting there going, if you only knew the value of that compared to the value of what I want to give you. It's shiny and it's new. It's a trinket. And we're so easily entertained by those things. Bless you. Friends, we got to listen to what it is that this God says because he's the one who creates life. He created it all perfectly in the beginning. And then you get to verse 18. It says, they are darkened. So it's like those without Christ are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Friends, when I was rereading this this morning and kind of looking up some of the words and what they mean, and that word hardness, it's, it's, there's this medical use to it. I'm not going to go through what the words are, but it's this medical use to it. But it's, it's this idea... It comes from this word that means a stone that is harder than marble. And so the medical use of it, it's like that there, there can be this stiffness that happens within the joint that all of a sudden it becomes hard. It's this word hard. And it causes a person to become, it feels like they become paralyzed because they can't, they can't move their arms and their legs like they used to. Or for those of you that have broken a bone and then they reset it, it becomes calloused. And that part where it, where it becomes calloused, where it's brought back together, that part is actually now harder than the rest of the bone. And so when he's talking about this hardness of heart, it's not just like, oh, they just don't get it. It's like, no, I'm, I'm standing against this. I'm so hard to this. I'm calcified against this. Notice that it's all happening from within. I think a lot of times we think that sin is just, hey, I messed up and therefore I'm a sinner. Because I, did a, because I made a mistake, I'm a sinner. Friends, sin didn't start because we sinned. We're sinners. It starts from within us. Guys, we're not sinners because there's sin in the world. There's sin in the world because we're sinners. We brought it to the party. And so when we sit there and go, kid, you can't do enough good things to make yourself right with God. It's true. Because in, in my core, outside of knowing Christ, before Jesus, to my core, I was sinner. I was hard-hearted against God. I'm rebellious against the Creator. It's not just, oops, I made a mistake. 
It's I don't want him. And it could play in both ways. It could be self-righteousness, that I'm going to do all these good things, and I'm going to make myself look pretty amazing and make myself right before God. I don't need God. I can do that on my own. And then there's the other side. It's like, I don't care what God says. I'm going to live however I want. Why? Because I just like it. I want it. And guys, that, that word actually even comes up. So we keep going. Uh, where was that? Verse, verse 18. Now verse 19. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Guys, when I looked up that word sensuality, it's this idea of shamelessness or outrageousness. It's unbridled lust. It's like this. A lot of times we try to hide our sin. Right? So what it is that we're struggling with? Our sin, we try to keep it to ourselves. Nobody needs to know. Nobody can know because I'm ashamed. But I want to keep doing it, but I'm going to keep it in the dark. This word means I could care less who sees me. I'm going to do it for everyone to see. This is how hard-hearted and perverse someone can come when they're entangled by sin. So instead of keeping it quiet, it's out there for everyone. And friends, if we look at it, don't we just have a whole lot of platforms now where we can constantly watch it or we can create it for others to watch? Friends, I know that I know that social media is huge, and I used to have it. I used to be one of those pastors that I would go to like a youth camp or something, and I would take a picture from the back. But it would be an angle where kids have their hands up, and it looks like there's like 3,000 people there. And there was like 13. And then I would post it on that old part, old, that old thing called Instagram. And I would post it, and I'd say, oh, blessed to be here. Humbled to be here. Even a hashtag. And then all of a sudden, I found myself not feeling validated as a human unless at least 100 people liked it. You been there? It's like I'm posting this for the world to see. And yet Jesus would say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. And yet I'd let everyone know what I'm doing. I needed to make sure that I was accepted and that what I was doing for the Lord was validated as this person. And, and I got really convicted one day. I was just having a time with the Lord in, in the book of Romans, the end of chapter 2. And it says something like, and God will give you his praises. And I thought, that doesn't make sense, God. Like, why would you give me your praises? That's what it says. See, it's like this. I think there's times where we feel the conviction of God, but I also think that there's times where God wants to speak those attaboy moments to you. Attaboy, girl. Like we hear that phrase. How many, guys have, how many guys have heard this phrase at least sometime because it's from the Bible when it's like, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. You ever heard that phrase? And we think, okay, that's just when I die. Like I'll get there one day and he'll say, great job, well done, good and faithful servant. But why do we think that God would stay mute now while we're on the planet, never giving us an attaboy, girl? I'm proud, look at that. He would marvel at the faith of a centurion, but he won't marvel at ours. And I think it's connected to this. By a show of hands, how many believe that God loves you? Without a shadow of doubt, you know God loves you. Way up, charismatic, not Baptist style, way up. Now put your hands down. Next question, how many believe without a shadow of doubt that God likes you? Right? That's what happens. Guys, everywhere I've asked this question, I ask this question almost every time I preach somewhere. Whether it's here 
I remember being on, on a mission trip in Palau, which is out by the Philippines. I asked the question to the same, a group of 30, 40 people that showed up to something we were doing. And the same thing happened. Every hand goes up. God loves you. When I say, hey, how many believe that God likes you? It's like, oh, what do you mean by like? You mean by like or like, like, like? What do you mean by like? We actually just think that God's putting up with us. And we forget about the passages where God calls the people of Israel, and we're grafted into the people of Israel, so I believe we can apply these passages where he calls them, hey, you are my treasured possession. Friends, I want to tell you, when you get to the place in your relationship with God where you can hear the attaboy, girl moments, when you can sense the favor of God, when you can sense that he's proud of what you're doing, and what you're doing is not so that he'll, that he'll accept you, but because you're accepted by him. It's not so that you'll be loved more by him, because you know you can't be loved more by him. But you just do it out of this adoration of God. You just love him with everything you got. And everything that you do is simply because of that, not so that he'll like you more or love you more or give you more. It's just our opportunity to do what? Worship. Worshiping more than just singing a song or showing up on a Sunday morning. But every moment of every day, every thought, we take captive to make it obedient to Christ in obedience to him because we worship him. Every word we speak, a word of encouragement to people because we worship him. Every action that we do to be done in honor and glory of him because we worship him. Friends, that's what he created us for. And then sin came in and jacked it all up. Let me rephrase that. We brought sin to the party and jacked it all up. Guys, we have platforms for it. And so the conviction I felt that day was this. I felt like God said, hey, Brian, you keep using my people for your quick fix of pleasure. That's not what a pastor is supposed to do. And right from there, I mean, he's a little bit more graphic, but I can't say that word. So I, I ran back to my wife and said, God just called me this. And I ran back and I, I got rid of the account. Like, Brian, I shot him a scream. What about all the people? How do you keep in contact? It's called a phone. You can call. What about all the people you meet on Facebook? I don't know them. So I don't have it. And I'm alive. I bet you don't have TikTok. Nope. And I'm so thankful. Why? Because how much of your life is spent looking at a fake life of, life of somebody else, wishing you could be like them, and they're thinking the same thing. You're wishing you could live the life of somebody else, all the while missing out on the life that God has given you to live. And we can keep saying, well, this is how the world communicates. This is how we live. This is how we do things. And I'm sitting there going, but when has the church ever had to come under the culture? Instead of being the church that is supposed to transform and impact the culture with the gospel. What has happened to us? That we just get in line. Guys, it's sin. That's the root of all. We just, we just want our trinkets and our toys and the things that will take us away from Jesus. And I'm not saying that those things can't be used by Jesus. But I'm starting to think, how often am I saying that? Or how often are we saying that just to justify our continual use of it? At the neglect of God. Guys, you can jump on YouTube constantly and see this word 
this unbridled lust, this outrageousness, this shamefulness to haunt the whole church. Guys, it's just kind of showing what our world's like. And then that word for greedy. When you look in verse 19 again, uh, giving themselves up to uh, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Wow, what a powerful phrase. That word greedy means whatever it takes, even if I have to hurt people along the way to get what I want to do. That's what that word means. So when we think greedy, it's like just wanting more than you're supposed to have. This word actually means I want so much. I want, pretty much, I want what everyone has and I will hurt them if I have to in order to get it from them. I will use anyone and anything Whatever it takes to get what I want. That's what this word means. So, well, Brian, I'm not like that. But friends, it's a it's a really it's a gradual, it's a gradual thing. It can become a gradual thing. And here's what here's what I mean. Um, when I was a youth pastor back in the day, uh, we did a, a beach camp out trip. And there's two things that I don't like about that. One, I'm not the biggest fan of the beach. I know some people are like, <gasps> I just, uh, there's a lot of sand, and a lot of sand gets in a lot of places, and it's not comfortable after a while. People are like, I love it. Okay, beautiful. I'm not like dogging it. That's just not my favorite. I'm more of a mountain guy. Thank you. We have a kinship. I see it, man. It's like, oh, there's more passion there. Oh, good. Okay. And then, but camping. I, I don't like tents. Like, I figure that's why there's hotels now. And people are like, I love to camp, but you're like glamping. You know what I'm saying? Like you have like this fifth wheel that's bigger than your house. It's like we suffered this week. I mean, the, the air conditioner almost broke. It was only sixty-three in there during the summer. It's like so that's that's your form of camping. But I don't like tents. And so, but I said, okay, the kids want to do it, and I'll do it. I'll do it. And so we go and we get it all set up. And it's the first day at the beach, but I didn't sleep the whole night because while you guys all have fun, the youth pastor doesn't sleep because there's this <laughs> there's this pressure. You got to keep the guys and girls separate. So you have to just, you lay down on the ground between both of them. You're like, oh, we always get around that. That's sinful. Okay, but here, here I am, keeping them awake. And so I'm just awake a whole lot of nights. Plus, I don't like sleeping in the tent. So now we're at the beach, and kids are off playing. It's like, Brian, we're going to go play. I'm like, good. I need a break from you. So they go swimming. And, no, and then I, I, just, I just put my head back. No joke, I fell asleep for like two hours. It was awesome. I mean, I could have sworn that, like, what, I had hair then. Not now, obviously. I thought they would have shaved my head or something, but they didn't do it. They left me alone. So a couple hours later, I wake up, and a few of the kids are around, and leaders are standing there, and I'm like, hey, has anybody seen the ones that went out to the ocean to swim? It's like, no, they're out there somewhere. I'm like, oh, I probably should find them. Make sure, I don't know, just one thing, I should probably make sure they're alive. Because I learned this about being a youth pastor. Every parent expects you to bring every kid back. Right? They always like, they expect perfection. It's like, but what do they, like, if I come back, like, I get a 95 on a test in school, that's an A. That's celebrated. I get 95% and bring a kid back. It's like, how dare you? I'm like, I can't be, I'm not Jesus. So I go looking for these kids. And I, I see these little heads bobbing out in the water. And I think, oh, that might be them. But then all of a sudden I see, no joke, I see lifeguards coming from all over the place. I mean, I see these trucks flying with their sirens on. You see these lifeguards jumping off their stands and booking it to the water. And then you see this boat, the lifeguard boat, massive, like just 
yellow just coming, and it banks hard left. No joke, three lifeguards jump off as it banks left, like these perfect swan dives. And I'm like, am I in a movie? So I'm trying to look all jacked. And I'm not even thinking about the students anymore. I'm just like, what is going on? And I see them just swimming out to these eight to ten kids, and I'm like, oh, crud. Those are mine. And they come off back, and the kids had no clue what was going on. And they get back, and the girls were really excited because there's this one Australian lifeguard, like flowing blonde hair with the sweetest Australian accent, and all the ladies were like, the abs, oh, the abs were there. I felt very intimidated by then. And all of a sudden, like, the girls are like, <laughs> and he's like, hey, you, they were in a riptoid. And I was like, a what? Pretty much it's the ocean's version of sucking you out to eat you. And no one knew because it's so gradual. He said they got caught in a riptide, and what it does is it just pulls you out slowly, and it takes you away from shore, and then as you try to swim back to shore, you can't. And with these kids, I can tell that they're not the greatest of swimmers, even though they're having a blast. They have no clue what's going on. But this was pretty much, this is how serious, here, serious it was. Everyone had to come to save these kids because they weren't going to make it. I'm thinking, I really hope nobody heard that. And if they did, you cannot say anything to your parents. Don't say it to your parents. Guys, just the same way that it's this, this gradual thing, it's the same thing with sin. It's gradual. We're sinners at, at the core, yes. I don't think that all of us jump into this shamefulness. We want the world to see everything we do. Ha, ha. It's just this gradual thing that happens. And then all of a sudden, we become more and more entangled by sin. Rather than coming to the one who gives us freedom from it. Guys, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to fly around real quick. Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, well, don't. But <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Guys, that is so important because that is the same tactics. That's the same tactic that the enemy uses today. Here we have God's word, his written expressed word. And the enemy still comes along and says, but did God really say that? Is that really reliable? Is that really trustworthy? Friends, we live in a culture today that says there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as objective truth. What's the problem with that statement, though? By making that statement, you are making an absolute truth statement. If I say, hey, there's, there is such thing as absolute truth. No, there isn't. There is no such thing as absolute truth. You just proved my point. So when I say there's absolute truth and you say that there isn't, you're actually conveying to me that you actually believe in absolute truth. You just don't like it. And the end result of everyone living according to their own truth, based upon preferences, the only ultimate outcome that comes with that is what? Anarchy. Nothing else. Guys, we all want to do what, our, what we want to do. And the enemy still comes up and says, did God really say? And now look at what he says. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Think about it. He twists it. At no point did God say, here's all these trees with all this food. Don't eat any of it. It's pretty to look at, and it's good for food, but shut your mouth. 
And so the enemy comes along. Did God really say you can't eat of any of it? And so maybe it's today it's like this. Did God really create fun and not let you have any of it? You can't do anything? Guys, I'm sitting up there listening to you before we all come down. And you're all getting jacked up over this thing floating around. Right? No joke. We're trying to talk. And all of a sudden it's like, ah! The whole room, because it didn't hit the corner. Right? You're like, maybe next time. Guys, isn't it weird that a floating Hume logo can be fun? I just, you guys played rock, paper, scissors, the oldest game ever. I think Adam and Eve, I think they had it. And it's fun. You guys are making sleds out of boxes to launch yourself down a hill and jump and it's awesome. And I sit and go, do you really think that God said, hey, I'm going to create fun, but you can't have any of it? And isn't that what he does here? The enemy says, did God really say you can't have anything? In verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees that in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, God's never said don't touch it, but I think it's a good rule to put on. Let's just leave it alone. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Guys, you know what he said right there? He said that God was a liar. Like, I didn't hear the word. If God says, if you eat of this, you will die. And the enemy comes along and says, you're not going to die. Isn't his accusation of God in that moment is that God's lying to you? God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. And then he tries to continue to prove it as if he can. He says this. Where was I? Verse 8. Well, verse 4. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God, friends. You do what you want and you can be like God. The only problem with that is that there is no other God, no, not one. Friends, I cannot measure the universe with the span of my hand. I've got about four inches, maybe five inches. I can't live outside of time. I'm, I'm really kind of bound by it. And yet God exists outside of it and yet lives inside of it with us. There's not one place where God is not. He's never late. Friends, he's sovereign over everything. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. And yet I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen today after chapel. God knows if you do this, you'll be like God. And you'll know good and evil. And I look at that now as a 48-year-old guy, and I'm like, I don't know that I want to know the difference between good and evil anymore. I'm tired of it. I like being five. I like when I just played with my friends and went home. I like that. Now watch what happens. Verse 6, for when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it says that he, she took of it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. I used to think he was just in a hut by himself and all this was happening without him. He's standing there with her. 
When God before this said, I want you to work the ground, I want you to keep creation. The word keep means to guard, to protect. And there is his wife speaking to the serpent. And he doesn't step in, he's just standing there. And then he took of it and ate. He says, the eyes of both of them were open. They realized that they were naked, which is the most awkward realization in, that, in the history of the world. Before that, just run around naked. That's normal. That means there's no laundry. I know, that sucks. One day, Adam and Eve, I'm like, really? Really? Laundry, your fault. But here's the part that hit me. Guys, I've preached out of Genesis 3. I can say oh, many, many times. I've never made the connection. If you go back to chapter 2, this was just in my last time, in my quiet time, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. When you get to chapter 2, verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And that's where it stops. And that's what she came away with back here in chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, God said, yep, it's good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Yep, God made it pretty. And then she added one. It wasn't put, it wasn't put over. And that the tree was to be desired. That word desired means to be lusted after, to strongly desire something. In other words, to get it no matter what, no matter who I have to hurt, to get it, that's what I want. The first two were right. The second was personal. This is what I want. And she took and she ate and she gave to Adam who rebelled because he thought the same thing. Guys, this is sin. And this is how ugly it is. You're like, but Brian, I, got, I have a good heart. I don't doubt that you, I don't, I, I don't doubt that I would have a blast sitting and chatting with you and hearing your story. But when it comes to the human heart, Guys, it's pretty wicked. I mean, and I come away with this because Jesus talks about it. And you're like, well, man, for those that don't believe in Jesus, he's like, well, what's so great about Jesus? I figure a guy who can predict pulling off Easter and did it, I'm going to go with him every time. Every time. So they're going, Brian, I'm 16. I know, but you haven't pulled off Easter. You pull off Easter. You die, come back from the dead. I'll give you some, I'll give you some validity in that. But I'm going to go with him every single time. And this is what he says about the human heart. Now picture, picture this. On Valentine's Day, remember when, when you were younger, you give everyone a card? Did you have that? The, I, had, I had a mom who's like, okay, here's your Valentine's cards for everyone. And I felt weird, a little weird. I'm like, ah, what am I saying? Am I saying I love all these people? Hey, Cody, happy Valentine's Day. Hey. <laughs> there was a girl named Beata Zabo. I remember her. In sixth grade, this is what she said to me. I've never forgotten it. So when people say, hey, words don't hurt. Oh, well, I still remember it. I was hyper skinny back in the day. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the rest of This is just counseling for me. Thank you. And so she goes, and we never got to wear shorts. I went to a private school. We always had to wear pants. But on the, like two or three days, we got to wear shorts. I'm like, I'm going to wear shorts. And she walks up. She didn't like me for some reason. I don't know what I did. Probably something jerky. But she walks up and she goes, hey, you know what? I was like, what? It's like trash talk, sixth grade style. Your knees look like you swallowed two avocados whole and they got stuck. <laughs> Some of you are like, show them. Shut up. I'm not going to. <laughs> I was like, what? And I was like, you are, because I had no comeback. And that's, and that's all I had. So I even had to give one to her. 
I was like, here's, here's what we're giving each other. We say, you have, here's my heart. You have my heart. I just want to give you my heart. And you're like, oh. This is what's forgiving. Ready? Mark chapter uh, 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of people, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Happy Valentine's Day. That's my heart. You realize that it's all inside. Sin is not just the act. Sin starts inside because we're sinners. And sinners cannot stand before a holy God in his presence. You sit there and go, Brian, this is kind of heavy stuff. I know. But here's the thing, guys. The gospel makes no sense unless we talk about sin. It makes no sense. If I said, hey, if I walked up to a person and said, you know how much God love you? Jesus, who is God, came and he died for you so you could be forgiven. If that's all that I ever say. If all that I ever say to people is, hey, God loves you and has a plan for your life. What is, how is that even pointed to the message of the gospel? You know what you need to start with? Oh, yeah, he loves you. Sure. But we're sinners. And we can't save ourselves. There's not enough good things that we can do to make ourselves right with God. And so God came for us. Why do you have to die? Why do you have to shed his blood? Because we read the book of Leviticus. That's how God set it up. See, I can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Realizing the sacrifice that Jesus made and going back to what the scripture says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still rebellious against him, while we still hated him, Jesus came and died. And he showed the extent of his love that while he was on the cross, he prayed for those who were crucifying him in the moment. We have a loving God, but we also have a just God. And actually, it's not opposite. Just and love are not separate. They all come together. God is holy and just and righteous, and he will punish sin. You said, go, it's not fair. Guys, fair ended in the garden. You don't want fair, you want grace. You want grace. Why? Because if it's fair, Jesus never comes. Jesus never takes the cross. He never takes the wrath of God. He never goes in our place. He never dies, doesn't have to come back from the dead. None of that happens. We will then have to, because we're fair, we will stand before God on our own. We have nothing to offer him. We can say, hey, I'm right before you because look at my list of what it is that I've accomplished. And Jesus would say, man, all of those good deeds are like filthy rags compared to my holiness. Friends, we can't make ourselves right with God. I get that it's heavy. But when we talk about this stuff, the totality of what the scriptures teach, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, it's blown up in this massive, unbelievable tapestry and portrait. It makes more sense and we become more enamored with who God is when we realize who we are. I promise you that none of us will stand before God one day with an attitude. God, you say that you're so good, then how come I had to face or how come we went through it? You've got some things that you need to explain to me. At no point will any of us say that. All that we will say is, oh, I'm, uh, I'm down. I fainted as though dead. I got nothing to say to you. We will fall upon his grace and his mercy for those of us who know Jesus. And for those that don't, you'll stand before God and have to answer for yourself. 
All the while, Jesus came for you. Died and came back from the dead. And we'll get more into that tonight. But friends, we have to at least own this. All the stuff that's broken in the world is because we broke it. I know that God created everything real good. It says it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And then we came along and broke it. Think about it. God created everything, spoken into existence. It took us three chapters to jack the whole thing up. And yet God, even in chapter 3, declared how he was going to fix it. Genesis chapter 3, we broke it, and it's toward the end of that chapter. You'll see this first mention of what it is that Jesus would come and do. You don't see Jesus' name mentioned there, but you see what he's going to come and do. And we'll look at that more tonight. Can I pray for you all? All right, let me pray. Father, I want to thank you that you tell us the truth. I thank you that you confront us with this because you love us enough to do so. God, even this morning in my time with you, I, when I was just writing in my journal, I was like, God, I really need to think about every thought that I have, and I need to confess the ones that aren't right before you. Not out of a sense of duty or fear, but just out of a sense of worship and necessity that I could be freed from those things. God, I thank you. I thank you that you confront us, and that you love us enough to confront us, but you also loved us enough to come for us. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in such a way in all of our hearts, whether we know you or not, and bring things up that we need to confess and repent from, to turn away from, in order that we can actually be following after you. So God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for the rest of this day that you're blessing us with. You are good. And you are great, and we love you for it. God, to you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor, for you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you more than you know.